Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Lieutenant Commander Donnelly Wilkes, a Navy surgeon deployed with the Marine Battalion. Dr. Wilkes served two combat tours in Iraq in 2004 and 2008, and was awarded the Navy Commendation Medal with Valor for his actions in the Battle of Fallujah. A photo of Wilkes and his team huddled around a fallen soldier went on to become a Pulitzer Prize-winning piece and a Life magazine cover. I left the service the United States Navy as a lieutenant commander in 2009. I served for a total of seven years on active duty and um, for approximately a year and a half of that uh, there there were two combat tours in Iraq. When I was accepted to Tulane Medical School one of the Navy recruiters got a hold of me and said hey you got you got some big bills coming your way why don't you look at the Navy you know helping you pay for it and he encouraged me to apply for the scholarship so I did and I was accepted, and then the Navy offered to pay for all of med school in turn for seven years of active duty service. That was pre-9-11. I had always kind of had visions of joining the military and, you know, decided that the life suited me, and so I signed up um, in the Navy as I entered medical school. There's a few caveats, though. Every month, one month of each year of medical school, the military students are pulled from their normal duties and they are sent off to various training institutions. So, for example, one of the first was out to Newport, Rhode Island, to the Navy's version of boot camp for officers. And so I would go out there for six weeks during med school, learn to put on uniform, military history, and learn how to be a naval officer. Another month in my third year, I'm sent out to a combat casualty field medical course to learn how to practice field medicine and understand military environments. So they're kind of indoctrinating you as you go forward. And then day one of graduation, right after we would had our ceremony in New Orleans in a, in a downtown theater, about 15 military students are ushered off to the side into a little room. You are seated. You've got orders in front of you. A naval officer comes in. You all stand. You take the oath. 
and you are commissioned as lieutenants in the United States Navy. And so things change rapidly as a military medical student. And from there, they continue to change more rapidly. And, and I'll cue you in um, as we go forward um, on how that worked. My military naval career that I had visioned and been you know, told about from the Navy recruiter was going to be vastly different than what I thought it was. And that's because September 9-11, 2001 was just right in my rearview mirror. So the world was changing rapidly. Things were escalating in the Middle East already. And I was getting orders to Camp Pendleton, California, which is where um, one of the residency hospitals is for primary care medicine. And that's the field I was going into. So within you know just a couple of weeks after graduation, I'm out in uh, Camp Pendleton on a Marine Corps base working at the Navy hospital as a resident. But I know things are continuing to escalate in the Middle East and within one year of that, just still being a baby doctor, I'm plucked out of residency and given orders to join a Marine Corps battalion and head to the Middle East. It was a little bit of a mixed bag. You know, I, I certainly knew that I was going to be entering, you know, uncharted waters for me personally, emotionally and physically, but I, I never could have envisioned what lied ahead for me the level of trauma, the proximity to the battle that I would be involved in, despite my military training, despite intel briefs, things like that, nothing could have prepared me for what I ultimately would encounter in Fallujah. So when we arrived in my, my battalion, we, we went to Okinawa for a few months to do some urban combat training to, to get the Marines ready for what it would be like in Fallujah and the surrounding cities in the Al-Anbar province. Um, but when we arrived there, which was oh, roughly March of 2004, you know, it was still the Wild West. And I say that because, you know, we roll into Kuwait, you know, by jet liner and the whole battalion, you know, is stationed in Kuwait for three weeks. We prepare for our convoy and then the convoy rolls out. It's 50 to 75 vehicles with everything we need to sustain that battalion being mobile everything from bullets to band-aids. And then for three days, we um, drive north right up into Iraq. And the, one of the first sights and sounds that I remember telling me that it's the real deal is I wake up in the middle of the night and the convoy's heading towards the oil rigs that Saddam had lit on fire. And they're burning dark in the night like these incendiary little evil <laughs> flames. So that's when it really hit me full circle where we're headed towards, you know, towards that, that environment. And then after three days, we make it to our forward operating base just a couple miles outside Fallujah. And to give you the lay of the land that really happened pretty quickly after we get there, within 24, 48 hours, mortars are hitting right around our FOB, our forward base, not far from the outer walls. I instantly realized, you know, how proximal we are to some of the worst cities in Iraq in the Sunni Triangle area because we're getting mortared almost every night and some of them are close enough to, you know, kind of rattle your bones. And then within just a, a week or two, the Battle of Fallujah, the um, orders are passed down that we're going to go head on with the insurgency in Fallujah and that my battalion is one of two battalions that will lead the charge. And those orders come directly from General Mattis, who flies in and we have a late night meeting with him and the officers and he gives us marching orders into Fallujah.
So as we're hammering out the battle plan um, with the um, battalion commander and the company commanders, they know that this is going to be, you know, a big full-scale assault into Fallujah, going into about 20,000 embedded insurgents within that city. They know that there's going to be a lot of combat trauma, so we're trying to figure out what's the best way to manage that situation and get Marines to care quickly. Initially, they wanted me and the other doctor in the battalion to be mobile and kind of move into the injuries that are inside the city. We made the point that that, you know, didn't make as much sense as having one stable battalion aid station that's really proximal to the front lines. And so that's that's what we agreed upon. And so we ultimately then moved the battalion aid station just outside the city uh, lines to a field battalion aid station. And that's where we decided to receive combat casualties. There's many factors that just come into play that you can train for, but, you know, ultimately you, you have to go through it and experience it to fully understand what it's like. So the analogy I'll give is it's like ballet with a bull, you know, combat trauma, combat medicine in general. In other words, it's like you're this, you're in this rodeo, you're this cowboy, you're, tra- you're strapped onto this machine, this bull that you can't control, but you have to learn to live within it, to work within it, to even understand it. Um, in order to control it and in order to operate efficiently within that um, crazy environment. And so what I'm, what I'm really getting at is you've got things like heat and your flak jacket and your Kevlar helmet on your head and dust that's incessant all around you and getting in the way of everything. And then you've got mortars and rockets in the background. And sometimes as we were treating injured Marines, there would be the battle in close proximity, you know, not far from us or mortars hitting pretty close to really rattling our cages. And in any normal environment, let's say an emergency room, even the busiest one in the world, it's controlled. Let's put it that way. You've got nurses, technicians, you've got blood tests, you've got invasive monitoring that can give you lots of information on how to to treat that patient. You've got all kinds of helping hands. In the field, you've got great corpsmen and some Marines protecting you. And other than that, it's just you and your wits and your medical skills. And you've got to make decisions on the fly. And you're going to make mistakes sometimes, but you have to just go with it, forgive yourself, and move on because the next trauma victim might be right behind the first one. So it's just an unforgiving environment um, is really how I put it. And um, things change constantly and you just have to be willing to go with it and use the skills that you've, you've trained for to get through. Yeah, so most of the combat trauma from Fallujah was, you know, a lot of gunshot wounds and then mortar wounds, everything from light shrapnel to more penetrating deep shrapnel and then sometimes big open wounds from rocket, from RPGs, rocket propelled grenades um, and sometimes just more traumatic gunshot wounds. So on a typical day, you know, we're just a few hundred yards from the battle, which we could see playing out a lot. Um, we were at a, a position called the Cloverleaf, which was right underneath a freeway overpass. We had some dirt barriers around us, but that didn't protect us very much. You know, they'd still lob in mortars and a couple times rockets hit right under the overpass, you know, kind of close enough to knock us on the ground. And um, sometimes we get radio notification. We've got victims coming in. Um, other times it, a Humvee comes out of nowhere right from Fallujah, screaming towards us. We wave them down. Marines come out of the back and start bringing out injured, injured Marines. On one particular day, uh, kind of right at the height of the battle, this was probably April 8th or 9th, um, you know, they bring in four wounded Marines. 
A couple of them have shrapnel and gunshot wounds to their extremities. One Marine has a massive head wound. And, um, you know, it was an open wound. It was pretty horrific just to look at it. And I couldn't believe this man was still breathing. So we have to triage the lesser victims to make sure that they're stable, not bleeding out, which they were okay. And then we go to, you know, work on the most severely wounded Marine. He's got blood running down in his throat. He's coughing it up. He's losing his airway because of all the blood. And I didn't know how he was alive, but we knew we were going to do everything we could to keep him alive because his Marines are looking on and, you know, shouting from the sidelines. So it's, it's chaotic, but then my corpsmen know what to do. We kind of get people you know, pushed aside so that myself and my other doctor, Cormac O'Connor, can go to work. We stop the bleeding in the head wound, and then we have to cut a surgical airway, which is an, a very technical um, procedure to do, even in an emergency room. Um, but we go to work, and you know, just to give the real basics, it's a small incision near the Adam's apple. Then you have to open that up. You have to find the airway, insert a little stylet that allows an airway tube to go over it into the airway, and then you hook up a bag valve mask, try to secure that around his neck, and you provide artificial respirations through that airway by squeezing the bag into his lungs. We got it. It was very difficult, and uh, kept him alive. And then we were able to get a medevac, a Humvee, to take him to the next level of care, which was a couple, few miles away. Unfortunately, that man died, you know, but we did stabilize him to get him to a surgeon and give him the best chance. And so that's just one example of, you know, a moment in time that I'll never forget. Yeah, the corpsmen are, you know, my right and left hands when I need them. And the great thing about them is about all of us really is, you know, you can't really tell just from a glance corpsman, a Navy corpsman from a Marine. We wear the same uniform. We're all part of the same unit and have common mission. There's corpsmen embedded with the companies and they're out in the field and they're, you know, the most immediate point of care for an injured Marine. And so um, there's a number of them in each of the companies that provide that field care and they're highly trained field medics and they saved a lot of Marines. And then the corpsmen that uh, work with me are the ones at the battalion aid station. And they're helping me from everything from, you know, patching up gunshot um, and uh, mortar blast wounds to caring for some Marines with combat stress who have been brought back, you know, uh, to the aid station because they may have been paralyzed at one point or another from being able to carry out their orders. Not a, It didn't happen a lot, but we, we had a few of them. And the greatest thing about the senior corpsmen, the one who, who've been in the, in the field before, who have seen combat before, is there's just some elements to living within a Marine Corps battalion that were foreign to me. You know, it's this completely foreign world. I, I was a, a hospital doctor and, until I was stationed at Pendleton. And so just some parts of the culture or just like, hey, doc, you know, <laughs> let me help you with your gear. Simple things that really can go a long way. Those senior corpsmen who've had years in the Navy were just invaluable to me in helping you know, us perform our jobs. I give the Navy and Marine Corps a lot of credit for training. When I, when I look back and, and I look at and understand the level of training that they provided me before heading into combat, it's really good. They, they've got field courses and trauma labs and things like that and, and working on you know animals, for example. In other words, dead pigs. We put airways in them. We do cut downs. So a lot of that was designed to help me thrive in a combat environment. 
With that said, you know, it's been, and I think one of the unique parts of my story is that it's been a while since military physicians have been this proximal to combat. And even in Iraq, you know, the Battle of Fallujah was unique. It was the biggest battle of the whole 10-year war. It was, it was the most violent. And there was just a handful of us as close to combat as we were. So that was shocking, you know, living, living for two to three weeks in the field and being that proximal to the battle. Um, like I said, didn't expect it. It was surprising. I didn't know or understand what it was like to have a, a mortar or a rocket land within yards of you and knock you off your feet and know that that was meant for you to kill you. Just being real candid, I had to make peace at one point with where I was because I was asking God some serious questions about, man, how did I end up here? I knew I joined the military and I had a job to do and it was the life I chose, but it was it was difficult to reconcile with the proximity to the battle and the trauma and the death that we were involved in. And so I had to make peace with that and I did. And when I was able to do that, it allowed me to go forward and finish my deployment and my mission with um, accepting my fate, good or bad. And that, that means life or death, really. So that evolution happened throughout the deployment and, um, and helped me persevere. Me and my corpsman, uh, we all worked together. And, you know, to give you an example, um, there was a Marine that came in one time and he had such life-threatening wounds that the question popped in my head of, what can we do for this person? We knew this, the, the quality of life was going to be next to nothing, even if they did survive. So it was, the, the question was, well, do we proceed with all-out efforts? Well, it only took seconds, and the answer was yes, we will proceed with all-out efforts because everybody there, his fellow Marines, deserves to see nothing less, and that's what they want to know every, every time. Um, but, you know, you could miss something. You could miss a pneumothorax, which is air trapped around the lungs from blunt chest trauma, and misplacing that, that needle into the chest to release the pneumothorax. Those kind of things. Um, but that's what I mean when I say if you miss something, you just have to, to know that you're doing your best and move on and continue treating the other Marines around you and, um, and be okay or um, forgive yourself if you make a mistake that, that clearly, you know, was out of your control. We've learned a lot in military medicine. We've taken a lot of knowledge and examples from prior wars, um, from countries like Israel, who you know see some of the worst combat trauma um, routinely because they they're often in a constant state of war. And we've used those things to advance our medical capabilities in the field and take them closer to the battlefield than they've ever been before. So some of the the advancements that I was able to take advantage of are things like quick clot which is a, a powder that you can use in a large penetrating wound that is hemorrhaging, that the patient is at risk of bleeding out from. And you can use that to put it in the wound and stop the bleeding at least enough to stabilize them to they can, until they can get to a surgeon. You've got advanced airway kits like the ones that I used in the field to establish an airway that would otherwise kill someone. You've got things like decompression needles to release an, a pneumothorax, which is air trapped around a lung that would often and has historically killed men in battle. So a number of these things that have historically been um, battle wounds that someone would die from, now you can save that person's life. And to um, expand on that a little bit, another huge part of that is the proximity of surgical capabilities. 
So from where I was, which was Echelon 1 of medical care right there in the field, Echelon 2 is just minutes away by ground or helicopter. And there you have full field surgical capabilities that can perform highly advanced surgeries right there in the field um, to save that person's life. And then again, they can um, medevac them from there to even an even higher um, surgical field capability. So those advancements and bringing that equipment so close to the battle have made a huge difference. One of the emotional parts was there's these men, you know, who you have trained with and learned to or become close with, you know, some of them even your close friends over the months leading up to deployment. And then you go into combat and some of them are brought to me at the cloverleaf. I treat them and then they're gone. If their wounds were severe enough, they're gone and out of my sight. Um, for the rest of the deployment. And then we, um, you know, eventually make it back home. Um, and I would and did run into some of the Marines that I treated, a couple of them with pretty severe wounds. And it was just amazing to run into them again, see them, hug them, shake their hands. And then, you know, have a pretty emotional reunion as I'm thinking about it right now. It's actually make, making me choke up. And, um, you know, not all of them were great reunions. One was a particular Marine who had just, he was a poster boy Marine. He had a massive shoulder wound from an RPG that propelled through his shoulder, canoed through his shoulder, did not explode. Otherwise it would have killed him. And then hit a wall behind him, exploding behind him. But his shoulder was just filleted open. I treated him, stabilized him, got him out of there. And then I saw him back at home. And, you know, his arm was just atrophied and essentially useless. He was struggling a lot with mental health and depression because of the severity of his wounds. And it was just really hard to see his quality of life, you know, go down the tubes. And that's the last I've seen of him. But he made it back and he was alive. And to be honest, I've been actually thinking about tracking him down to see how he's doing today and if there's anything more that I could do for him, including working with foundations like the Garrison East Foundation, who sponsored my, or it gave me an endorsement for my book and um, I think is a wonderful organization. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. That's also, you know, just an evolution. And again, as I look back at my military history and deployments and then the aftermath, I've definitely remained very involved in the mental health component of our vets and, you know, just being an advocate for PTSD victims and things like that. The greatest thing is that the stigma of PTSD and combat stress has been, it continues to be removed as stigma and military members are talking about it and getting treatment for it a lot more than they used to. I was in charge of giving some of the briefs, some of the information to the men about PTSD as we transitioned back home. You know, I'll never forget being in an auditorium with all 900 Marines looking at me and I got to give this required combat stress brief to the men before we get home. And um, as I'm giving it, I'm not even considering that I could be a part of that or that I need to listen to that advice myself as much as I'm giving it to the men because I just figured, you know, I'm a, I'm a healthcare provider, I'm a doctor, and I didn't pull a trigger, you know, I wasn't out in the line of fire. But shortly after that, after I got home, you know, I realized that that toll of combat, of mortars, of living in that environment, it took its toll on me too. And, you know, I started to have some of my own symptoms of hypervigilance and just irritability and anger and and even some emotional issues as the months went on after deployment. So so providers are clearly not immune from it and just being subject to mortars and rockets and treating combat victims over the months of my deployments, which were two of them, it took its toll on me and I was able to finally recognize it and get some help and just talk about it. And fortunately I did very well and did not have severe symptoms, but if I didn't recognize it and, and talk about it, I would have suffered more than I needed to. So, um, so that was my um, journey with um, the emotional and PTSD part of it. When we loaded up the battalion from our forward base right outside Fallujah in the middle of the night and headed out and left Fallujah. I'm sitting in the back of a seven-ton truck um, to the open air. It's one in the morning. I'm sitting with one of my buddies, and we're driving past Fallujah in the dark, headlights off, snaking our way out of that dangerous part of the world. And I just looked, I was looking at the city and thinking to myself, here we are, and, and there you go. Fallujah and you didn't beat us. And, um, you know, I made it and I, I knew we weren't completely out of harm's way, but I just knew that we were going to be okay. And I was about a seven hour truck drive to a different base from there. Um, but that was a real, just kind of poignant event. And, um, I was able to kind of relax my nerves a little bit. And then from there, from that next base, when we got in that plane, and as soon as we got up to altitude, it was just the fact that we were out of the range of, of, let's say, anything that could harm us, and we were on that plane, that's when my senses told me that it was going to be okay and that I was going to make it home again and um, definitely had a, uh, 
had a pretty emotional, you know, just response as I was sitting there in that plane to myself, shed a few tears and was um, elated at just knowing that I was going to go back to my future wife waiting for me at home and uh, that we were going to make it. For me, I just felt like, okay, I, I would tell myself, all right, I'm going to, during the deployment, to earn the right to go home, I'm going to get through the next day and the next day and the next until I've earned that right. And we're going to do it together, the whole battalion. That's that's the culture. That's the mission. And um, every one of us had that same feeling to some extent. And you're right, when we were sitting there on that plane, and for us, the ultimate ride home was in, in American Airlines, and we all climb up with our weapons still in tow, still pretty dirty in our combat camis. And I just kind of was musing to myself at this scene on this beautiful airliner that was decked out with with fanfare and things like that, and all these dirty, ugly Marines with their weapons. But what a great sight that was because all of the men were, the look, the tension on their faces just instantly changed, like you said. The main challenge was, you know, it was unexpected. That second deployment, my commanding officer had literally the week prior said, hey, Doc, I think things look good. You'll probably stay at this new duty station, which was Port Wainimi in Oxnard uh, for the rest of my commitment. And then a week later, he called me in and said, Doc, I, sorry, I lied. I just got orders. I, I need a seasoned physician to go back to Iraq. So, you know, that conversation was tough with my wife because we knew what we were in for. And it was even a longer deployment. But, you know, once we got over that and through that, we just knew this was what we signed up for. And um, I went back to another month of trauma training at USC County Hospital, which was wild. But I lived there for a month working with the trauma team because the Navy has a um, has a little installation there for training. And I got some great training and um, went back to Iraq out to Al-Qaim on the Syrian-Iraq border. And it was kind of like a little field ER, but it was a much safer environment. And that is where staring at the outskirts of Iraq again, looking at the landscape and hearing the sights and sounds, that's where I decided to write the bones of Code Red Fallujah. And um, that's how I passed some of the deployment, writing that book. That helped me get through that second deployment, you know, being able to write about my first deployment in Fallujah. And then I came home and put that down and, you know, picked it up a few months later and decided, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a book out of this. So that's how the book was born. I can look back on it and still be proud of everything we did. And I'll give you a generalized answer or at least statement that I do feel that the United States and the peacekeepers of the world, I'll call them, have an obligation to squash evil and terrorism where it exists. Now, does that mean I want us to be in a 10 to 20 year occupation of a country? I'd say no, but I do feel that the peacekeepers of the world need to be, to have the wherewithal to rise up and combat evil and terrorism where it exists. And I think we should learn from what has been done in the past, these wars specifically, and how we might be able to better, as a unified front, do that in the future. Call it a version of the United Nations or something different or better, because 
this isn't the last time we're going to see this. As we all know, it's not going to go away. And um, I think we can do it better without necessarily having to commit to such a long occupation and price tag, both financially and lives. And uh, I think a lot of smart military leaders would agree with that and actually have voiced that. Would I jump back into it right away again if I was given the opportunity? Maybe. <laughs> I'd have to have a serious conversation with my wife. But I'll tell you, you know, when I when when my private practice was suffering during the pandemic, which it did, and there was a few months where I almost had to close down the doors, I, I, I said, well, hey, babe, to my wife, I can always go join the Navy again. And although, you know, it was said with some jest, I'm not completely kidding because I always know I, I could go do that again and go back to an environment and a home that I loved. There was lots of many parts of it that were challenging and that, that I would not want to do again. But I don't regret a minute of it. I wouldn't change it. And I value every part of it because it did make me a better physician, husband, father, and human, for sure, all those parts of it. So in the end, I would describe it as I know that although parts of it were hard for me to accept, it's where God wanted me and needed me. And it's where I was supposed to be. It's where I was supposed to be. That was Lieutenant Commander Donnelly Wilkes. To learn more about Dr. Wilkes' deployments, read his book, Code Red Fallujah. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.